Hello and welcome to the Never Heard of It podcast. I'm Craig Moorhead. And I'm Sean Harwell. And this is a show where we talk about the movies that have fallen through our cracks. That's right, Sean. Today, we have a very special episode because not only have we watched uh, an Abel Ferrara movie from 1984, but we also have a couple of very special guests, don't we, Sean? We sure do. Today, we have joining us from the excellent Podcasting Them Softly, Nick Clement and Frank, say your last name. Mangarelli. See, I was going to say Mangarelli. It's actually Smith. It's just spelled oh, okay. Italian. <laughs> guys, thanks for yes. coming on so much. It's a real pleasure to have you guys. We love your podcast, and obviously we were on once to talk about the awesome movie Buzzard and had a great time. So we're returning the favor today, and you guys have an awesome movie for us to talk about. So thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Sorry, Nick. No, it's, it's a blast. Obviously, we love your podcast, and Nick name drops you on our podcast all the time. <laughs> Sweet. No, this is cool, man. I'm, I'm glad because uh, Fear City is a movie that I've long loved for a very long time. And way back in the day, we were going to schedule uh, us talking about Fear City, and then that just never happened. And I'm glad we're finally going to circle back to it. This was a movie that I, w- I had never seen before talking to Frank, meeting him online and starting our podcast. So I'm a big Abel Farrar fan. Um, I've certainly not seen all of his work, unfortunately. He's made so many offbeat, you know, eclectic movies, and some of them are kind of hard to find in the right format, but this is one of my absolute favorites of his. It's definitely, I think, one of the best recommendations that I've gotten from Frank yet. I can definitely agree with that. It definitely turned out to be a, a good recommendation for me. Let's run down the uh, a quick synopsis before we jump into everything. This is coming from our good friends at IMDb, <laughs> who... Uh, you know, sometimes their synopsises aren't, aren't so close, but let's see uh, how we do today. Strippers in Manhattan are being stalked and maimed by a psycho killer, a conflicted ex-boxer turned talent manager, and his business partner and friend, who represents some of the girls, set out to find him before he strikes again. That's close. I think it's very close. So, okay, so Nick, why and how does it work for you briefly? This to me is just like... Abel Ferrara's, it's like peering into his soul, I guess. I mean, I don't know the guy, clearly. I mean, I mean, this is just totally deranged, outlaw, completely, you know, fuck it all cinema. I mean, you don't, there's, there's not one moment in this movie that gives a shit about being normal or nice. I mean, this is a nasty movie. It's like this big exploitation movie, this, in a way, grindhouse B thing. I mean... From what I gather, Fox funded this movie, but then when they saw the final cut, they decided, no, we're not going to be releasing this, and they sold the rights to an independent distributor. I could, that might not be correct, but that's what I remember reading. I just think this movie stands out so hardcore about showcasing an old New York, and um, it's just so sleazy and, and, and disreputable and... I just completely love it. Well, and, and Frank, what about you? So you're already a, a fan of the movie. Why is that, and why does it work for you? Well, Abel Farrar is my favorite filmmaker, and this one was very hard for me to track down. I ended up seeing this probably five, six years ago when Amazon Streaming Service first came out, and you couldn't find this movie on DVD, and if you bought it on DVD, it was like on Amazon used for like 100 bucks. This is before Shout Factory put out the Blu-ray, so I, I rented it on um, I rented it on Amazon Prime because this was I think the only film of his I had not seen yeah. at that time. I mean, just the cover art with the cityscape and Fear City in the bloody text and Billy D. Williams, Tom Berenger. <laughs> Tom Berenger's clutching Melanie Griffith, who's dressed like a stripper. I just knew this was going to be really cool. And I, I, you know, okay, I thought it was going to be either really cool or really shitty. Yeah. And if it was a combination of the two, I was, I was happy. But when when you first roll this disc and that theme song starts playing, yeah. mm-hmm. you know exactly what kind of movie this is going to be. Yeah. Instantaneously, you know this is going to be perverse and sleazy and just dark as shit. My, my initial impression the first time I watched it was I really liked it and I, be, I became fascinated with it because it seemed like... This was a studio film that he just took over and did whatever he wanted with. Right. And then the studio obviously dumped it because they watched it and it was like, you, you can't do this. 
you got some ninja dude cutting off strippers' fingers and, like, slashing their faces. And this is Abel Ferrara with kind of a polish before he shook the polish off and yeah. just went straight, <laughs> straight sleaze and straight transgressive cinema. I was surprised how well it held together as a movie. How, how I don't know, organized and focused it seemed. Considering, like, some of the movies we've watched here, I mean, even, you know, the, the, they definitely have their moments, but they don't always necessarily hang together. I mean, I was just kind of surprised at how well this hung together, especially with how big the cast is, kind of how many threads are sort of going on. Sean, what, what, was, what was your feeling after uh, taking this in? Yeah, I think like you, I, I was impressed with, with how it held together. You know, obviously, I know Tom Berenger, I know Melanie Griffith, and, and a lot of these people involved, but um, I had to tell you guys, and I'm kind of afraid and ashamed to say this out loud because you're totally going to revoke my blockbuster card but i think this is the first abel ferrar movie i've seen i've started watching bad lieutenant and it's i put it off for way too long but but shame. i know i know i know put me in the shame closet craig start ringing a bell shame <laughs> yeah i think it was when i heard that it was frank's favorite director i was like oh there's no way i'm watching any of his movies but here we are no i i, I was excited to check it out i didn't know what to expect but i what i liked about it was exactly what you're saying is like it feels like from a different world almost. I mean, that New York is so unrecognizable outside of what I've seen in Taxi Driver. And like, that's literally the only other movie I could think of to compare it. You know, it feels like this is a director who was not at all afraid of going into those places and capturing it as it is. These strip clubs feel horrible, even the ones that are like supposed to be somewhat successful. There are things here that I think, you know, they fall into the category of you know, camp, pretty much all of Billy D. Williams' dialogue is delivered in a way like, you know, Schwarzenegger delivering a one-lighter. And I think that's all he does in the movie. Like, I, I literally don't know what else he does other than, like, speak awesome lines. Don't rock and roll with me, Rossi. I didn't come in here to get jerked off. What I think elevates this movie is those details and then the little things like the flashback to Behringer in the boxing ring, the flashback to him as a kid watching those guys get murdered at the shoeshine stand. There's a shot of Behringer at the end in the alleyway when you know it's finally coming down to boxer versus karate guy. <laughs> and like I wrote down, I was like, this was worth the price of admission just that shot like he looks like a straight-up murderer like Behringer and it's awesome like he, I you yeah. know I don't know if that's just a male thing but like I could not help but feel that sense of excitement like that this serial killer guy who we should mention is not named at all in the movie and that's part of the mystery and the joy and I'm sure we'll talk about that later but yeah, by that point, I was like, I want to see this guy get his ass kicked. I think he's the first serial killer I've seen in a movie who looks like he blow dries his hair, which I loved. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, that, it does not disappoint. That fight was great. There's enough blood and um, sex dripping through this that it lives up to the title. And I don't know. I don't know if I can like hands down say this is like a great movie or a good movie even, but it works. It, it really, really works. <laughs> for what it is I think it cuts to the chase it's like there's no fat on it really like from a screenwriting standpoint Nicholas St. John's screenplay is, is very streamlined and it involves all sorts of genre elements that you would expect from a movie with this like the cover art on the video or like the poster and yet it has an integrity and that's one of the things if you haven't explored Abel Fryer's work and, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy a, a good number of his movies if you enjoyed this there's gritty integrity in every single one of his movies, but I did want to bring up one thing because I noticed it this time even more around this time, uh, last couple of times I watched it um, in the last week or so. And Frank, I'm curious to know because I know you know a lot about Abel Farrar and about his movies. Did anybody else pick up like major whiffs of Pulp Fiction and Bruce Willis within the Tom Berenger oh, yeah. boxing yeah. stuff? And, like I yep. just like totally picture Tarantino geeking out with this movie like at his video store and like flipping out and watching it. Repeat didn't even think of it you're right though you're absolutely right i want to back up just slightly um sean mentioned the cinematic quality of the flashback sequences and that's one thing that i find very fascinating about this film you know it, it gets very uh perverse and transgressive and dark at times but then you have the flashbacks explaining tom berenger's character as a boxer who accidentally killed somebody 
and then he just he can't fight anymore and it fucked his whole life up. Those scenes, those flashback scenes are so polished and so crisp. Yeah. And it it takes you out of the sleaze factor from the rest of the movie. That's one thing that I, I absolutely love about this film, and I'm not sure which version you guys watch, because I know there's a couple different versions out there, but did you guys watch the version where there's, like, the lesbian scenes between Ray Dong Chong and Melanie Griffith? Yes. Yeah, I did, yeah, those... Where the scenes are spliced in from a negative that's been sitting in the sun for 20 years? <laughs> oh, no. I, I noticed that a little bit, but I wasn't sure if it was just where I was streaming it from or not, yeah. So I was just curious about that because um, I, I ended up buying the Shout Factory Blu-ray. The synopsis on... The one-sentence synopsis on Shout Factory's website is a hard-nosed police detective and a conflicted ex-boxer turned private eye set out <laughs> to find a vicious psychopath before he strikes again. Now, that's the synopsis I read before I watched the movie. Yeah. And then when you watch the movie, Tom Berenger is not a private eye. No. And he and Billy D. Williams, who's the detective no way in any shape or form team up it's right. just so lazy and, and, <laughs> and catch and catch the karate guy let's talk for just a second about that cast because i was not familiar with um jack scalia who plays nikki oh who is Matt's sort of right-hand man. I don't know. Maybe I've seen him in something and just didn't think about it. But I liked that, you know, <laughs> these two guys, like they, the first time you see them, you know, Behringer and Scalia roll into a, a you know, strip club like they're celebrities or whatever. But Behringer, yeah, like again, like he, look, he looks like Tom Behringer. He looks like he's getting ready to kill somebody. And then you've got Scalia who looks like JFK Jr. And I just thought, it, you know, it's a pretty interesting pairing here and I wasn't sure what you know who these guys were or, or what on earth they were doing I certainly did not imagine them being agents of strippers <laughs> guys who book is that a real thing does that exist I mean it, it surely doesn't anymore right are there agents for strippers Ta talent agents yeah I I don't know yeah. We should look into this. But like, is that just a, a, a noir invention? In a noir story, it totally makes sense that you would definitely yeah. have stripper agents. Speaking of the cast, aside from the top build guys, I do love Michael V. Gazzo in it. Yes. You know, everybody so knows him from Godfather 2 and then yeah. from Fingers, the James Toback film. But yeah, it's, it's very cool to see him. And, and you know, it's just, it, this has to be probably his most prominent cast yes. or mm -hmm. at the time top so good cast because what this came yeah. out in 1984 so this was after star wars for billy d williams and this is right as sure. tom berenger and melanie griffith were taking off and ray dong chong was yeah she's I, do I, commando I, probably, and right probably pretty pop pretty popular at the time yeah and they're both very yeah. naked so that was melanie griffith's thing back in the day what what year did body heat come out Body oh, double. That was before this. Or I'm sorry, body double. I think this was right around the same time, like within right. a year. So yeah, I mean, she she was just. I mean, this time period for Melanie Griffith, she was completely on fire. I mean, it's like there's no two ways around it. Yeah, and I mean, you really have to hand it to this cast. I mean, aside from the fact that there is, you know, it's it's clearly in a in a fairly ridiculous world, but because it's Ferrara and because it's it's this cast. Like, I, there's really not a moment in it where I, where I ever really doubt it. Like, none of it ever feels like a pose. It, it feels very much like Ferrara knows that world to an extent where he can he can pull this movie off. And it's like, I, I mean, and, and I buy pretty much everything that, that happens in it. He knows, the, he knows that crime, criminal, dark, neo-noir world in the same way that, you know, Scorsese knows that world. I've always felt yeah. that Abel Ferrara was Martin Scorsese's like rock and roll punk brother. You know what I mean? Like this guy that like that has the chops, has the filmmaking chops, but like really, really doesn't work probably well with like the suits or just just, just he's too independent. He's he's too fiercely um, engaged with his own sensibilities. And and for me, the most exciting movies always happen to come from filmmakers that are like that. I mean, I love Scorsese. I love, you know, De Palma. I love all these contemporaries of Abel Ferrars, but 
Um, and again, I haven't seen all of Abel Ferrara's films. The ones that I have seen, though, they just like they're electric. They're awesome. I mean, they have a vitality about them. There's a, a sense of weight to everything. And even when he gets sort of not not schlocky, but even when he sort of takes the genre elements in some of his movies, like like really hardcore, there's still a uh, uh, this great sense of cinema about everything. Have you guys seen Invasion of the Body Snatchers? Or Body Snatchers, I guess, is his. I, ju- I just watched that the other night. I did like a triple feature of that, The Blackout, and then Fear City. Yeah. Nice. But I, I love Body Snatchers, and I think that's a very unique spin on a story that's been told countless times. Yes. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's so well known, and, it, and elements of it are so borrowed in so many movies, and yet that movie completely creeped me out. And I couldn't believe that it actually worked on me. Meg Tilly scares the shit out of me yeah. in that movie when she does her scream. And then when she does her, like, where are you going to go? Yeah. Her, her line, you know, I think that, I think Body Snatchers, not to get too far off topic, but that's his most mainstream film. Definitely. That's, that's his most polished. I believe that was his Cannes film the year it came out. And that had, like, you know, the legit actors in it. Meg Tilly, old girl. Who who plays the lead? I can't remember her name. Forrest Whitaker, Arlie Ermey. Yeah, I I love Body Snatchers, man. Yeah, it's a, it. Body Snatchers is a really good riff on classic material, and like Frank said, it's it's it was Ferrara sort of going, you know, with not conventional material, but more like you know audience friendly material. But then he still put his own spin on it. Definitely. I think it's also worth making a note that Abel Ferrara and Michael Mann are really good friends, right? And Man is kind of how Ferrara got his start. He directed the two-hour pilot, A Crime Story, and then he directed, you guys should check this out, he directed an episode of Miami Vice. I believe it's in the, in the, first, it's in the first season, and it's called Home Invasion. And <laughs> while you're watching it, you know Abel Ferrara directed it. <laughs> it, is, it is by far the darkest episode of Miami Vice. I would like to also point out that his the second episode of the two episodes he directed is titled The Dutch Oven. And <laughs> I don't know what it could possibly be about, but I'm definitely now going to watch those two episodes as soon as possible. Farts. Farts. Let's talk about a little bit within that plot. It's interesting that they break POV to see the serial killer because we get glimpses of him. And again, like the guy is never named in the movie. And I don't, he doesn't show up in the credits, right? No. no. Yeah. And so here we are breaking POV to somebody who's not even in the credits. And, you know, it's a little, it's a little familiar at this point that there's a guy in a room and he's got a gigantic poster of the human body with like points on it to where you can just kind of assume, Oh, that's where you should, should aim for if you're trying to like really hurt somebody, but not kill them. And he's writing in a journal called fear city. Like it's even titled, you know, um, and, and sort of spewing his, you know, very dark opinions on society. You know, thinking about maybe Frank to the first time that you saw this, did that throw you for a loop? I mean, are we used to kind of going, into the POV of a serial killer so much at this point that it's not that big of a deal. It was a little jarring to me. I don't know. What did you guys think about that? No, I mean, I, I think that is a standout scene in the movie because it's so far off base of the rest of the film. It takes you, I mean, it knocks you off kilter because mm-hmm. there's no explanation to it. It's like, okay, this guy's obviously a psychopath that is good at karate good at karate and knows how to apparently hold a knife and slash people and there's like the ominous voiceover narration that that's where the i think the taxi driver connection certainly comes in um with that scene mm-hmm. but yeah i mean there's really no explanation i guess that scene is the explanation yeah. and as incoherent or maybe disjointed as that scene can be looking at the film as a whole i feel that it serves its absolute purpose with explaining this guy because i mean there's not really much to explain aside from that scene or i should say there's no other explanation given aside from that scene and i think you grasp what's going on with this guy Mm. when you see the way he lives and his fear his fear city journal but you're right and i mean i I still can't get over the fact that nobody knows who this guy is it adds to the creepiness of the entire thing it's like an urban legend (laughs) you know 
we got to find this guy. Let's drag him down. Yet another thing I like about this movie is that, you know, Abel Ferrara, in a lot of the movies that I've seen, he'll situate action in a familiar context, but then he'll subvert your expectations. And I think that just just from the the notion of having these guys have their profession, you know, Berenger and Scalia, like what, what their actual jobs are and sort of what maybe your expectation of what they should be doing and what you see them doing and how they act. And it sort of extends through it to everybody else in the cast and the way that people behave and the way that they interact with each other. Uh, nothing sort of happens in exactly the way that you figure it will um, and yet it all does come together sort of this in this cohesive whole which is i think an exciting uh, element to the whole thing definitely can we can we talk about melanie griffith for a little bit we can yeah i'm sure we can <laughs> it seems like she might be in love with ray don chong clearly she has a, a relationship with tom berenger's character prior to that when ray don chong gets slashed and is in the hospital she does end up again with Tom Berger before she died. And so, I don't know, do you make any sort of heads or tails out of, does she have real feelings for either of them? Are we supposed to think that? Does it matter? That character's a pretty dark character, you know? I mean, at the end of the day, she's a, she's a junkie. Yeah. Well, I mean, she was clearly, she was so stricken by the fact that Radon Chong had been slashed that she couldn't even dance nude. So to me, that's true. That's like, that's as good as a mental breakdown. <laughs> I figured, yeah, she's already going through that. And then Behringer, you know, you got a hot beefcake coming in. And, you know... He's, that's he, the greatest thing you've said this entire... <laughs> that's the greatest thing anybody's ever said this entire... The chest beaver swooping in to save his girl. I mean, yeah, I like... I mean, are you going to are you gonna say no to that? You're vulnerable. You know what I mean? I don't know. I guess I kind of looked at it as whatever relationship they had prior to the film starting was hot and fiery and obviously didn't work for... A multitude of reasons that they kind of get into in the film and then she sought shelter with Ray Dong Chong's character because Ray Dong Chong's character was showing her intimacy and compassion and empathy and all that stuff and I could be reading way too deep into the movie because they could have just had it in the movie to have a lesbian scene and that's yeah. true too so I think it might be a mixture of both did it bother you Shaw? Not really. I mean, just yeah, just by the end of it, you know, it was like, oh, yeah, she did just have sex with, with Tom Berenger, I think, like the night before that Ray Don Chong dies somewhat conveniently in the hospital right as right Melanie shows Griffith up. shows up to visit. Yeah. But that's okay. You need that in movies. Mm-hmm. I like that she's maybe not committed to either of them. I mean, or that she fluctuates. You know, if I know anything about junkies, it's that they're maybe not the most loyal people in the world to, to right. anything other than, than drugs. And, you yeah. know, she's she's trying hard to kick a habit here and, and clearly relapses. Ultimately, I don't know. I, I liked that character and I liked sort of the arc of it. And then, you know, she ends up becoming a bit of the damsel in distress at the very end. But um, it was still, it's just, it's so well set and established and and played out that it just like i said you know i was waiting for tom berenger to come kick this karate dude's ass and like it it fulfilled it so you needed you kind of needed her to be at that really vulnerable moment of banging on the door of her drug dealer and looking up and seeing he's hanging from a rope and she knows that she's next, you know, that this guy is there and um, seeing that play out. While we're on the subject of Melanie Griffith, it is Body Double and Fear City came out in the same year in 1984. Oh, that's wow. awesome. So, so that means that she must have shot these movies back to back or like, Jesus. You know, I don't know. <laughs> if a lot of nudity. That. that is just intense to think about working with Abel Farrar and Brian De Palma. And Brian De Palma, like, yeah. In, in like the early to mid '80s, on those two specific films, I mean, now I have to watch Body Double tonight before, like, before I go to bed. Like, yeah. of course, it's gonna happen. It's kind of, kind of a hell of a, a double feature, really. It really yeah. is. In like weird way, they kind of complement each other. I mean, I know Body Double is its own, totally, it's its own thing, but the movies do sort of complement each other with the sleaze quotient and sort of the excess, uh, the nature of excess about the whole thing. It looks like maybe she took most of 1985 off. And was only in one TV show. <laughs> and so then she did something wild in 1986. So she probably oh, needed man. a break after those two. <laughs> what a great streak, though. Something yeah. wild after that? Yeah. Wow. Good for her.
I'm looking up on the internets, and the killer's name is John Foster. Yeah. And his, yeah, I'm sure you guys might have saw this. The killer's name is Pazzo, and his only credit on IMDb is Fear City. <laughs> wow. I saw a rumor that he might be in Bloodsport. Yeah, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't confirmed. So Let's start that rumor here. <laughs> but yeah, it's crazy. I imagine the guy's like maybe like a stunt dude or something. I don't yeah. know. Probably, yeah. He was a karate instructor somewhere, and they were just like, yeah, come on, come be in the movie. He's good. I, I mean, I think he works for what they needed him to. Yeah, totally agree. It's a strange version of a role that we've seen before. It's a very offbeat portrayal of the serial killer and the whole thing with just not knowing anything about the actor and the name. It just it adds to this general sense of unease about the whole situation. I have a question for you guys. Okay, so Ruby is the character, Nikki Scalia, his girlfriend, right? Mm -hmm. And so she's clearly on the lookout for this killer. She herself is a stripper. She carries the mace. There's a scene where I think she's at a phone booth, and then he attacks her, the, the karate killer, John Foster. He grabs her. And right as Nikki shows up, there's a very brief altercation between the two of them. And I was trying to remember, because... To my memory, the karate guy only kicks Nikki maybe once. Mm -hmm. But then Nikki's in the hospital. <laughs> yeah. And I, mean, I don't think he's in a coma, right? But he's he's out of commission for like a couple days there. And that's yeah. kind of that you know, that's definitely fuel to the fire for Tom Berenger. I didn't miss anything in that fight. I mean, it felt like his injuries were a little more severe than they did they, than it looked like. Seems but, like um, should, well, you know what? It, it's funny you say that because I immediately just I immediately bought it mainly because you remember when uh, certain certain uh, groups in the country were trying to drum up this terror over this game that youths were playing called the knockout game, where you would just walk up to somebody and just punch them as hard as you can to try and knock them out in one punch. And Jesus, you see all these no. videos of this happening? I miss that. Thank God. Oh, really? Oh, my God. Well, yes. I mean, YouTube it later. I'm not you, going to look. No. Yes, no. YouTube the <laughs> knockout <terrible>. game. You <laughs> won't want to walk anywhere by yourself for a while. Oh, good. But but no, like, like it, it, this is what would happen where, you know, uh, and, and it happens in, in fights, too, and so on. You know, if somebody comes up and just lays into you with one punch, if you fall backwards on your head, like, you could be over. It could be done for you completely. So that's why I was kind of like, I mean, that, that kind of seemed how he went down. So I was like, all right, maybe he's in the hospital. <laughs> it was a long way to go for that explanation, I know. But that's exactly yeah. like... For right the record, I would, I would also be in the hospital if I got kicked once. So, I mean, it's not like I don't <laughs> believe it. I just Yeah, tough weird. guy. Kind of like the Nicolas Cage punch that starts Con Air off. Right, yes. <laughs> but not as, not as uh, deadly. Indeed. <laughs> One other little thing. Okay, and, and help me out here. Maybe I'm crazy. Did any of you guys notice... There was a dude at, and I think it was Frank's strip club. It's, it's the introduction scene to Billy D when he walks into the place and he says, you know, you get that pussy off the bar, I'll shut you down, whatever that line was that was amazing, right? So yeah. that scene, there's a group of dudes at a table. One of those dudes, I swear to God, is in the Hudsucker proxy. Very large man with very intense eyebrows. Wow. Did anybody else notice that? I, I haven't seen that. the Hudsucker proxy in oh. a very long time. I haven't seen Hudsucker in a long time either, but now, of course, you're making me think about who this is. and I, I'm going to it right now. I'm going to take a look right now. I tried. I looked in the cast. And I tried to find the connection. I couldn't because there's so many people in Fear City that are listed that have no picture beside them <laughs> on IMDb. But uh, in Hudsucker, he was one of the dudes at the table, at the conference table. Boy, I hope it is because I love that guy. And his eyebrows. I'd just like to make note really quick of how amazing Billy D. Williams is in this movie. Yeah, we should talk about him a little bit. Let's do it. Because, I mean, honestly, you don't really see Billy D. Williams outside of too many things other than Empire and Jedi and then the first Tim Burton Batman film and then Nighthawks. He's had a pretty quiet career, yeah. all yeah. things considered. He's such a charismatic actor, like, in Star Wars, and he kind of had this chameleon, you know, ability and, like, the few things that I've seen him in outside of Star Wars. Like, was it the Colt 45 commercials that he did that, like, pissed everybody off or something? Like, Dude, fucking what Colt 45 commercials are the greatest fucking things ever. <laughs> <laughs> and he's doing it again, by the way. Okay. My well, but it's just like, like, 
like I don't understand. I never understand why he never had a bigger a bigger go of it as a as you know. That is really surprising. Yeah, like looking at looking at his at his filmography. I mean, I mean, he he was you know as far back as 1952, he was he was on the scene. But yeah, I mean, how did he never break out as some kind of an action star or a romance star or something? Even in Batman, like theoretically, he was supposed to be Two Face, and oh, really? I know that that never happened yeah it was in his contract oh harvey dent yeah okay yeah because he's playing harvey dent and then we we were able to talk to daniel waters who wrote batman returns and my big question was at any point was max shrek shrek christopher Watkins' characters originally harvey dent and he said no he wasn't and he had written like a one scene cameo of harvey dent being in the film flipping a coin and then they just burton scrapped it and then burton never made batman 3 and, you know, they got Tommy Lee Jones to come in because he just won the Oscar. So I don't know what happened to him because, I mean, that was kind of around the same time-ish because, you know, you had the Star Wars movies in the early 80s, mid-80s was that, and Cult 45. And then... Hawks. Nighthawks, which he's great in Nighthawks. I, I, I mean, Nighthawks. Yeah. Nighthawks is list. a fantastic film. That is so a good. I just watched it for the first time not long ago. It's just an awesome movie. Yeah, and then, you know, and then 89 is Harvey Dent, where we have the promise of him coming back as Two-Face, and that just unfortunately never happened. Well, I do see that he is in a TV movie of Dirty Dancing that's coming out, so we got that to look forward to. Oh, my God, that is amazing. It's come back. I hope he plays plays Jerry Orbach's part. Uh, He plays a character named Tito. Oh, maybe not. But I I will say I'm fairly confident he's going to come back as Lando in um, Star Wars Episode Eight. That's totally going to happen. I don't think there's any question about that, but... What if he's a terrible person? What if that's it? <laughs> what if no... Yeah, no one can stand working with him. How about that? <laughs> I refuse to believe that Lando Calrissian's a shitty person. Well, let's uh, let's wrap up Fear City. I think we all enjoyed it. I think we would all probably recommend it, yeah? No, Absolutely. No question, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. Uh, any last bits of... of uh, praise or criticism of this movie no criticism for me <laughs> no criticism for me again i i think this is just a, a a really really fun just the right kind of sleazy entertaining movie that doesn't really get made too often these days hmm. i'll criticize it you know there were several scenes where it's not really a criticism at all but i found this interesting and i don't, I don't know if you guys saw this too there were several scenes of Behringer, and, and they seemed to happen mostly in the office. But there would be these jump cuts that, to me, uh, suggested that Behringer was taking too damn long, <laughs> but like in his pauses between <laughs> doing things or something. Like it would just be only when Behringer was on the screen, but it would just be like he'd say something, and then it would like jump cut, and he's handing whatever he has in his hand to Nikki, or you know, like. Uh, and I just thought, wow, like that happened at least four or five times, I think. And I was like, man, Behringer, you know pick up the pace i do have one criticism and it's the first time that scalia and tom berenger are in the car together and tom berenger's all love sick over melanie griffith yes and he tells him the joke oh about yeah the italian the italian uh what is it the not arborist the gardener, gardener. who falls out of a tree or whatever and he's like if you don't laugh i'm gonna shut the car off right now and tom berenger gives one of the worst laughs in movie history that is that is so phony but it works well for for the film sure. so that every time i watch it it's just like i just like you know i kind of laugh and it's like oh tom i don't think tom Berenger. yeah i don't think he's ever laughed in real life anyway i just that's just my impression <laughs> of him <laughs> he just did not know how to do that they probably did yeah. 67 takes of that and he's like seriously guys i don't know how to do this <laughs> he's losing he's losing his voice yeah. in the post yeah doing laugh poor bastard well obviously thank you so much for bringing this to our attention it was it was a really cool one to check out absolutely
I would love to talk to you guys a little bit about just sort of how the podcast came together and what you guys are kind of, you know, if you have an MO for it or, or what you kind of hope to achieve. Obviously, you know, we've mentioned you before. You've done interviews with guys like, you know, cinematographer Tim Moore, and I just listened to the one with Steve Rails back, and that was great. You know, you're hitting actors and directors, and but additionally editors and writers and some of the, you know, cinematographers, these guys that don't, you know, always get interview space. I, I love that about the show, and so... I don't know, tell us a little bit about it and, and why people should check it out, maybe. Well, Nick and I started it a little over a year ago, and we had no idea what we were doing, and we just wanted to have a discussion about an underrated, underseen, or unfairly criticized movie that we both really liked, and we really appreciated, and we figured that other cinephiles would really like, along the lines of what you guys are doing, I mean, honestly... And then we got really lucky. I think week five or six, we did I Melt With You with a Mark Pellington film that I'm obsessed with. And Nick got in touch with Mark Pellington, and he came onto our podcast. And then from there on, we kind Mm -hmm. of quickly transitioned to doing interviews with writers, directors, producers, cinematographers, editors. I mean, pretty much we've talked to everybody from a Production director to a, yeah, to, to a costume designer. I mean, effects supervisors. I mean, I mean, like, like Frank said, it's just, it's, there's so many movies out there that are worthy of discovery. Even in the worst overall cinematic year, there's still plenty of stuff to find and, and, and to really get behind and to champion. And like you said, Sean, there's tons of people that go into making a movie. I mean, there's a reason why the end credits last five minutes. There's so many people that go into making a film. And, you know, Frank and I are just we're movie buffs. We don't work in the industry. There's zero agenda. We don't get paid to to do our show and to watch films and to write about them. So if, you know, we can find you and we're a fan of your work, then we're going to reach out to you if we can. And we've just been so lucky to have these great people. I mean, I, if you told me a year and a half ago that we would have spoken to Peter Hyams and Rennie Harlan and, you know, Seamus McGarvey and Salvatore Totino and all the cinematographers that we've spoken to. And I just, name drop. You know, I just so there's so many people. I mean, it's just it's we've gotten right. so lucky. Lynch Shelton was one of our first guests. Wayne Kramer, right. um, and, you know, and 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 because Mark Pellington was so generous and he was so um, excitable, I think that that really we just got bit by the bug. And you know, we're just taking it week by week and having fun, and we're always interested right. in you know getting people to talk about movies and see something that they've never seen or you know or better yet go watch a movie that they didn't like that frank and i do and then you go back and watch it again and you like it maybe more the second time so i was just gonna say in all honesty in a way it's kind of selfish of nick and i because we you know we seek out people that we really want to talk to like nick was saying if, if you would have told us a year and a half ago we would have got to speak with these people i mean we've had ken kelshan twice who's twice. able for ours friend and and cinematographer of like 17 films he didn't shoot fear city but i mean he shot bad lieutenant and welcome to new york which just came out i mean it it's very cool for uh nick and i personally to be able to talk to all these people and i think it's very cool for people to listen to these people speak who normally don't have any i don't want to say press that's for lack of a better word you know press or or a shot light uh shined on their career yeah, uh, you know, yeah. I think a lot of these people have very interesting stories, very funny stories, very unique stories. And for anybody who loves film, I think that they would really like and appreciate the insight that you know the costume designer on Bone Tomahawk has. Yeah, or, Mark Black. You know, I mean, you know, like the we, we got so lucky with Mark. It's one of the greatest like action movie editors, one of the, one of the best editors that's been around in Hollywood, and he spent you know, close to four hours with us over two separate recordings and we've got like wow. his his whole career, you know, and we're gonna drop a whole bunch of chats and these are the people that we're just we're excited to chat with because they've they like Frank said, they've got great stories and they've worked with everyone and you know, we're just we're just two excited guys about all these possibilities and we're just having fun and wherever it takes us, it takes us. I mean mm-hmm. we still haven't even met in the flesh. <laughs> it's just crazy. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. Even right now, it's like surreal for me to be able to speak with an editor and then a guy who wrote a bunch of Eastbound and Down. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, it's crazy. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's still very surreal a year and a half later of Nick and I doing this. I mean, 
Well, that's awesome. I was going to say, I, I, I love the interviews, but also I really enjoyed the episodes where you don't have anybody on. You know, listening to you guys talk about Domino made me really want to watch that movie, and I had no other interest in it <laughs> prior to that. And also, I listened to the one on Sexy Beast, which I've seen and enjoyed, but it's been a long time, and I was like, Jesus, I have got to watch this movie again, you know. Do you guys have a favorite episode, or just, oh, is there a standout one for each of you? Hmm. You go ahead, Nick. I'd have to think about this for a second. Put me on the spot, sure. Um, God, I mean, I really don't know if I could say that there's been a favorite. I mean, I, I honestly feel incredibly lucky to have been able to speak to, 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 to idols, to heroes, you know, to people that I've looked up to for so long. Um, movies mean so much to me, and they, they've brought so much joy to my life. And I have to be honest, speaking to Peter Hyams was a real thrill because... This is a guy that this is a guy that has worked as a cinematographer and director for like what thirty years, forty years, and his insight into his um, craft and what he told us was just it, it was just amazing. I mean, Rennie Harlan, that was a thrill. Um, I mean, you know, when, when we spoke with Lynn Shelton and Wayne and and you know Mark, you know, these early chats, these are the ones that really got us just you know, got our, like, engines revved and, you know, really just, uh, they were so generous with their time and, you know, to talk to people who didn't have, really have a show, I mean, like, we didn't really have anything to go on. So, because people have been so nice to us, we just, we feel so lucky. That's yeah. awesome. Frank? It's difficult for me. I guess I'll just have to pick a, uh, a couple. The one that sticks out the most is being able to speak with Ken Kelsch twice, and then we're going to do a third one with him soon. And like I said before, I mean, Abel Ferrar is my favorite filmmaker, and to be able to talk to the guy who's been a life partner of Abel Ferrara's since his student, his you know his thesis film, and the chats are are exactly what they should be talking about this guy's work and Abel Ferrara's work. I mean, this guy is rough, and it's it's just very unique because uh, I mean this guy really helped shape my love for cinema. As well as, you know, like my journey into adulthood, kind of, too. I don't want to get too weird. Uh, another one that sticks out is we got to talk to Nigel Bluck, who was the cinematographer of Son of a, Son of a Gun, but most notably the, the entire second season of True Detective, which I was wow. the, you know, the one person who absolutely loved that season. <laughs> and um, it was very cool to talk to him about that and get into depth about, you know, shooting eight episodes just him shooting at episodes and working with the actors and specifically working with multiple directors mm -hmm. on a show. Um, and then of course, uh, the Stephen Lang chat we had was just yeah, was unbelievable. That was just surreal for me the whole time. Right. Uh, you know, Manhunter's my favorite movie and I love tombstone and I've loved Stephen Lang the whole time. And the funny thing about that was, is I screwed up the time with that. And he called in, and I was talking to him for like 20 minutes while I was like frantically messaging Nick about get, getting on <laughs> Skype because I screwed the time right. up and it was an hour ahead of time. And I'm just, I don't, I mean, what do I say? Yeah. Right. You know, it's just like, oh, hey, Mr. Lang. And he's hey. like, no, call me, sl call me Slang. <laughs> it's like, all right, I guess I'm going to, you know, make the shit up while I go along here. While I'm trying to get a hold of Nick. But yeah, I mean, it's just. Every Pretty much everybody we've talked to has just been, you know, I think Nick would agree with me. Everybody we talk to, that's our favorite chat. Uh, yeah. I mean, we, we, we talked the morning after, and we always just say, oh, wasn't that the best chat? Wasn't that the best chat? And, it, and it's because, honestly, it is. Like, in the moment, you know, we haven't had one bad interview. And the, inter and the conversations that Frank and I have just had together, those have been extremely rewarding because, you know, I'll look at something that, you know, I've watched a million times but haven't quite seen it through his lens and vice versa and we'll get we'll get a chance to, you know, have you know, I'll give him a movie to watch that he hasn't seen or hasn't watched in a while and vice versa and you know, we're gonna get back to those episodes definitely coming up. You know, people just have to stop saying yes to our requests to come on to the show. When that happens then, you know, <laughs> right Yeah, we've been I mean we've been very lucky. Yeah. We've been very fortunate. Well you know, it's it's interesting because like we haven't interviewed a lot of people and the people we've interviewed are, are just are kind of just people we know. So we haven't really done a lot of, you know, outreach to, to folks that, that are outside of our circle. But I have to imagine the more that you interview people, it, it, I feel like that is, is kind of has a snowball effect. It must. Like, at some point, people can look at this and say, oh, you interview people. Well, yes, I'll do your show, you yeah. know? 
that's it yeah. does, and then it gets a little dicey when we have to go through. Pe- I, I shouldn't say dicey, but it gets a lot more formal and professional when we have to go through uh, PR people. Sure, that was that was kind of a shock at first. See, people when, put themselves. You know, so many people put themselves out on Facebook, and and like ninety five percent of the people that we've spoken to. You know, we've corralled them through Facebook private messenger. I mean, like, honestly, it's, it's extraordinary how many people are on online sure. and, and willing to take a, a message from a fan. I mean, you know, so that's exactly what Zuckerberg wanted. <laughs> His plan has come to fruition. Yeah. 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 It, it, yeah. It, yeah we've, we've been very lucky with referrals, too. We wouldn't have been able to get Stephen Lang without Marcus Nispel, the director who's worked with him on Exeter and then um, the Conan remake. I think one of you guys knows Jody Hill. Yeah, we both do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, that <laughs> yeah. was supposed to be funny and not sound like me being an asshole. You're looking for a referral? Yeah. We'll see what we can do. I got really excited with Jody. He, like, right in when we first started, he accepted my friend request and I, like, like fell off my chair and I was like, Oh my God, the guy who did he's found I mean, the guy who did he's found and down and observe and report and foot this way. This is outrageous. And I remember we reached out to him and we had like nothing to show for ourselves. And, you know, I don't even think we had done like maybe one or two interviews and, um, I never got a message back, but, um, he's just an unbelievable talent. So yeah, um, you know, you should, uh, should hook it up for us. <laughs> he's, a, he's a very nice dude. Well, uh, on the note of being movie fans, I would love to kind of hear, I mean, we always ask our guests this sort of just, you know, it, was there a point in your life where you realized, oh, wait a second, maybe I like movies more than the next guy, uh, maybe to an unhealthy degree. And then just sort of specifically, I mean, look, like you two guys by far have outnumbered anybody who's made suggestions to our show of movies that I've never remotely heard of. <laughs> so, I mean, at, at what point did you realize, you know, as well, like, you know, it, it, and especially if there's a specific movie that's like, okay, maybe my tastes are a little more outside of the mainstream or, you know, I'm, I'm looking, I'm hungry for stuff that's not playing it safe. I grew up watching movies my whole life. My, my parents, when they deemed it was, it was acceptable for me to start watching stuff. I have vivid memories of watching any number of films with my parents in the theater and at home. Um, but it was probably when I was 14, my dad took me to see in like a span of like six weeks, I saw Pulp Fiction and Natural Born Killers on the big screen. And I I was a freshman in high school or sophomore in high school that just like totally ripped my world apart. Like I, I had just like, I had seen a, I had I had seen some stuff, but I hadn't really seen anything. I mean, clearly, no one had seen anything like Nacho Born Killers, and Pulp Fiction was pretty, you know, pretty groundbreaking. Um, but those yeah. two experiences in the theater really just set me off in high school. I really came into movies in high school and just started to get really obsessed with them. And you know, and then the following year, I remember Heat and Casino. Uh, both of those I saw in the theater and. Um, you know, like Leon, The Professional, that whole sort of grouping of movies in the theater really just opened up my mind. So I probably pinpointed right around that point for me that I knew that movies were really important and, and an integral part in, of my life. And I mean, I can still remember the first movie I actually saw in the theater. I was four and a half years old and my parents took me to see Baby, The Secret of the Lost Legend. Nice. <laughs> I think I saw that in the theaters as well. <laughs> for me, it's, uh, it's yeah, three it's movies. Start. It's... Return of the Jedi and VHS mm-hmm. when I was really, really little. The first movie I saw in theaters was Batman. Okay. And I was I was four years old, <laughs> and that's still one of my all-time favorite movies. And I met Michael Keaton last year and told him that, and he indulged me, Jesus. told me, shook my hand <laughs> and grabbed my forearm and said, I want you to tell your friends about me. I'm Batman. <laughs> uh, so that, that, was, that was pretty much the pinnacle of my life. Did you have an orgasm? I did. Oh, I okay. did. Okay. I, it was... I passed out. Yeah, well. And I met Rachel McAdams that night too. I was blacking out, man. It was it was, it was crazy. But <laughs> and then you know, no shock from our conversation, it was Bad Lieutenant. Uh, I bought it on VHS at Borders, the NC-17 cut, and I was trying to watch it before my mom got home from work. And I was sitting there eating, and the scene came up that I don't know if Sean made it to. Harvey Cartel's penis? No. Oh. I just I made an assumption, sorry. Nick and Nick and Craggle know where he pulls the two girls over. Oh yeah. I've oh yeah. And yeah, I'm watching it and I'm I was eating chips and salsa while watching the scene and my stomach just turned upside down yeah. and I thought it was gonna throw up. 
And I really quite, I mean, I really haven't been affected by anything like that since. Maybe Antichrist kind of got to that point a little bit, yeah. some Lars von okay. Trier stuff. But yeah. that's when I kind of realized that I, I, I really liked dark, transgressive cinema. And I liked movies that my friends didn't like. And um, I kind of spent most of my young adult life seeking out stuff like that and trying to find stuff on VHS. And then DVDs came out. And then fast forward 10 years later, I met Nick. And I found somebody that was freakishly more obsessive with movies (laughs) than I was. And had a a vast... Pretty much the, the best way I can describe it is when I met Nick, I thought I was the big dick cinephile yeah. that knew everything <laughs> about movies, and then he makes me look like my favorite movies, Forrest Gump. Very nice. <laughs> That's very nice of you to say. <laughs> and, and then, yeah, it's like I've, I remember our first conversation on the phone. We were talking about everything from Scorsese to Michael Mann to The Expendables 2. So I, I, knew, I, I, knew, I, found, I knew I found my BFF. I know I'm younger than you guys, but I, I was growing up or in middle school, high school, around the time the Internet came out, and that's when I discovered IMDb. Yeah. And, you know, I'd look up Harvey Keitel on IMDb, and I'd look at all of his movies, and I'd go to, every other weekend, I'd go rent two more Harvey Keitel movies, and then after I was done with that, I'd find another actor. The video store certainly is what the foundation of my cinematic love is from. Awesome. And I'm, I miss it. I mean, I, yeah. I love it now. I love being able to turn on my smart TV and pretty much watch any movie I can think of, but I do miss going to the video store and like walking around for like 45 minutes or when I was in high school and college when I'd get high I'd walk around Blockbuster for like <laughs> three hours. That's one thing I think about a lot in terms of uh, how it used to be with videos. You know, as we got closer to, to the, the, the DVD era, a lot more videos, like a lot more VHS was coming out that actually had letterbox, like the movie was actually in letterbox, which was something I was always looking for, you know, no matter where I was. And the other thing was, and it, and it's, it reminds me of Bad Lieutenant, because this was, this was a movie that me and a friend of mine drove all around town trying to find a video store that was carrying the NC-17 nice. version. Because everybody had R. Blockbuster wouldn't carry it. They had to have R. And it's like in, you know, it's like in the Bible Belt, so like no one wants to carry <laughs> The NC-17 version. And I, and I miss that. Like, I miss that that quest, you know? Like, that's not really a quest no. anymore. Like, that is sitting at my computer and just finding it, uh, which is nice, too. Well, let me ask before we go. Obviously, Killing Them Softly holds a, a place near and dear in your hearts. You know, maybe you've talked about this on your show before, but what is it about that movie? I mean, is it just can you, like, you briefly sort of say, like, how did you land on that? Yeah. You guys got another hour? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean it just... Killing Them Softly represents exactly what Frank and I had sort of, what our initial thrust was with this whole podcast. Take a great goddamn movie that people, for some reason, were mostly obtuse to, except for, in my opinion, people with head on their shoulders. Hopefully you guys like the movie, too, and I'm not insulting you. I mean, I know I'm speaking for Frank. We think that it's a masterpiece. We think that it's a great movie. We think that the shrugging that it received from audiences and from mostly and from most critics was just uh, embarrassing. And you know, that's just the kind of film that are like you know that movie and The Counselor are sort of like the two you know big movies that you know for us that, that you know sit at the top of the heat. I think you know Frank, if I'm not misspeaking here i mean you know domino as well i mean like a couple of these movies that we've really talked about pretty hardcore um that were really hated upon by critics and really just misunderstood and not given a chance you know killing them softly probably had the best reviews out of those three films that i just referenced there I think so, um, yeah. but um but still even like some of the best reviews of killing them softly weren't great enough in my opinion you know and it, it just it got lost in the shuffle i mean like brad pitt you know, for the last like ten years, he's been mostly interested in like like destroying his pretty boy image and like fucking with his like you know face and facial hair and like weird costumes and like these skeevy characters and you know there's just killing them softly exists in like this movie world that I feel is slowly drifting away. Um, you know, you don't get those types of films very often, and when they come around, most people ignore them. Well, Frank and I didn't. Killing Them Softly is everything I want 
from a movie, yet it still surprises me and amazes me each time I watch it. It's pulpy. It's straight out of the 70s. My favorite era of film, late 60s to late 70s. The ensemble cast is ridiculous. I always love right. that in films, too. I think it's, you know, James Gandolfini's finest performance. Brad Pitt, it's my probably my favorite Brad Pitt performance. The, the trailer with Johnny Cash as the man comes around. It's all this. It's dark. It's sweaty. It's gross. It's perverse. Yet it's completely artful while being able to wrap into it an amazing analogy to the economic meltdown uh-huh. that happened in 2006, 2007 that I really think went over a lot of people's heads. Right. Is there one? Is there a movie that comes to mind from like maybe this year or last year that's that's kind of fit that bill of missing the mark from critics and audience? Anything that stands out? For me, it's uh, Night of Cups. But I'm a Terrence Malick junkie, and I right. completely understand there are a lot of people who do not receive his stream of consciousness filmmaking yeah. very well. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's amazing. I agree with Frank definitely on Night of Cups. I think that critics have been, I think basically what happened was is that the Tree of Life came out. And even if you're not a fan of the Tree of Life as a movie, I think that most people respect the fact that it is so singular and it's such a unique experience. Nothing that he could have released after the Tree of Life would have ever lived up to, I think, what people were waiting for from the director of the tree of life. So like when to the wonder came out and in my opinion, basically reinvented the way that people use cinema as a visual tool. Like that movie to me is absolutely ridiculous. I think to the wonder is so ambitious and so challenging and amazing and heartbreaking and, and visually glorious You know, he then follows it up with something like Knight of Cups, which is even more esoteric and introspective and personal. And yeah, uh, definitely Knight of Cups is up there for me. Um, I I honestly have to say my, my favorite movie of the year by just a humongously wide margin is the Jeff Nichols movie Midnight Special. Um, which I think, which I think is just like, I still don't understand why they released that movie the way that they did. They let it die completely. They allowed a guy to make a very emotional and independent feeling movie within the studio system. Like that was a Warner Brothers funded project and they just let that movie die. And for me, that's the best movie of the year by a country mile. It's the one I've responded to the most. I've watched it repeatedly on Blu-ray now. Real quick, uh, The Neon Demon. I think it's cinematic perfection. I can't wait to see that. Yeah. That's, that's my, that edged out Night of Cups for me. Uh, also, Angelina Jolie's By the Sea, I think is fantastic. Really? And I know I'm going sh- to get shit on hard for saying <laughs> this one. Hard, hard, hard. But I would like to make note that Sean hasn't seen any Abel Ferrara films except for Fear City to preface this. But I mean, I think that Suicide Squad was just a remarkably beautiful mess of a film. Cool. Yeah. I, I just couldn't get over. You can cut that part out, I guess. No, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, Suicide Squad, I just I can't get over how messy and sloppy and incoherent and disjointed it was yet how much fun I had watching it. Those are all good recommendations. I still need to see Night of Cups and uh, definitely want to do so. I read today, I think Malik is making a movie that's set around the, the WW2 area in Italy, I think. So he's going back to a period piece, which will be kind of exciting. That should be very cool because Weightless, I don't know when that's coming out, but that yeah, was shot simultaneously with Night of Cups. Oh, yeah. And then Voyage, Voyage of Time should be coming out in October. Yeah, which looks great. I think. So I think that's when uh, I'm going to go meet Nick face-to-face and see if he catfished me, and we're going to go to New York City to go see uh, Voyage of Time together. <laughs> well, don't go into Fear City. Just make sure you stay away from yeah, that corner of New York. Yeah, Watch out for karate killers. Um, I feel like we could wrap it up here, guys, if you want to, if there's anything else, Craig. I don't know. I don't think so. I think we've, we've exhausted all of our, uh, our avenues here. Guys, thanks so much for coming on. Pure joy. Yes, thank you. No, yeah, thanks for having us, man. This was this was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. As always, it's a, a, a blast and a pleasure talking to you guys. 
Yeah, and we'll look forward to getting 16 more suggestions tomorrow of movies that we've Craig and I have never remotely heard of. I have this theory that if I don't respond to Nick within <laughs> 0.47 seconds on Facebook Messenger, Watching that he goes down a list of people that he just bombards with like obscure movie titles, trailers, and posters. I'm curious to see. I'm curious to see where you guys are on that list. No, I don't. I hope we're near the top because I, I love it. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. You guys are the ones that told me to watch Day of the Dolphin, so whatever. <laughs> true, Greg. And born to win. Well, it's been fun. Go check out Podcasting Them Softly if you haven't already, and uh, subscribe on iTunes and everywhere else you can do that. Check out their website, which is www.podcastingthemsoftly.com. There you go. Makes sense. All right. We'll talk to everybody soon. Nick, Frank, Craig, everybody have a good night. You get you too, Sean. Good night, sweet friends. Watch out for those stripper killers. They're out. <laughs>